want to talk a minute about construction um, and or reconstruction. What is it like when reconstruction is happening? And uh, one example is when a highway or a bridge or a grand river is being reconstructed. Just shout out, what's it like when construction work is going on? Frustrating. Frustrating. What else? What's that? Not very pretty. Yeah, yeah. It takes a lot longer. Yeah, good. I cut you off. I'm sorry, Elijah. What was the rest of it? It takes a lot longer to get from one place to another than it usually does. Yeah, just a lot longer. Yeah, to do the same thing. Yeah. A lot of adjustment, but also uh, gratitude. Like when I saw the men working on 496, I hawked and waved. I prayed God's blessing over them. That's great. So we can have decent roads. Excellent. Beautiful picture. I don't think I always have such a good attitude about it. There's a sign that says slow down. It's like, okay. I'm really different. No, that's good. That is good. How about when a house or a building is being reconstructed? What's it like? Disrupted. Disrupted. Yeah. Noisy. Noisy, yeah. Hoping for the best, actually. Hoping for the best, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it doesn't end up worse than than where we started. Yeah. How about when somebody says for a sports team, this is a rebuilding year? What does that mean? <laughs> That's right. They're doing badly, and it, this is the coach alerting everybody: don't expect us to win next week. <laughs> right. Be patient with us, because rebuilding is going to be hard work. And if you're a player, it says we're probably going to have to do extra practices, and we're going to be pushed really hard, right? When reconstruction is happening, it's often very challenging. When we look at it the right way, we say, because there's good coming. So, without your answer, I want to raise this question, and that is, what is it like when God is building his people? Um, And clearly... We can see some parallels. What's it like when God is building you and me and when God is building us? So I want to step back and ask this broad question. What is it like when God is at work? Right? What is it like when God is doing his good work? And uh, before we jump into it, I want you to so every now and then I come across some research and education. I think this is just so cool. It's so powerful. So here's a statement from education research. Even the brightest students have false ideas based on enduring misconceptions that are not easily changed. (laughs) Even the brightest students have these ideas that don't match reality. But it's based on these enduring misconceptions that it turns out it's really hard to change them. And so this statement comes out of this wonderful research. They took something that kids, especially in the U.S., are taught in elementary school. And they went to Harvard and interviewed graduates. And the Harvard graduates failed to explain what children learn in elementary school. And I could tell you more about the details of it. But hold on to that idea for a second. These highly educated, very capable people had these false ideas because they had some some misconceptions that endured in spite of being taught this over and over again. One of them in this this research even said he'd taken graduate courses in the same subject matter 
And yet he still didn't understand what kids are taught in elementary school. So, I have a scary question. What if that's true in Christianity? What if it's true that there are things that we go down the journey for those who have been Christians longer, and yet we continue to misunderstand things that might be very basic? And so I want to pray uh, that God would teach us, especially opening our eyes. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you know our hearts. And Jesus, we thank you that you are a masterful teacher. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are active in the world today. And you're active among us. And we pray that you would teach us, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to the truth. We thank you that you were in this work and that you do it. And so we'll trust you that we would see more clearly what Jesus, you taught, and what you did, and what you call us into. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, the title today is When God is Working. We're in Luke 24, uh, spending a couple of weeks in this last section as we go through the Gospel of Luke together, and we are almost done. Um, encourage you to have it open in front of you, and we will talk more about these drawings uh, in a couple of minutes. Uh, I just wanted to show you a visual of chapter 24. And this is not an eye exam. Those really are words of Luke 24. But I just want to highlight one thing from this. This is what we've all been waiting for, right? Luke 24 is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we knew this was coming. And so we come and we finally get to this chapter. And this chapter gives us the resurrection. It gives us the initial evidence of the resurrection. It gives Jesus proving his resurrection to people. Jesus was explaining things. He gave his final teaching, and then he ascended to heaven. In this section is this walk to the town of Emmaus. And here's how much of this section is this walk to the town of Emmaus. Luke had all sorts of things to talk about, proving that Jesus was really resurrected and the teachings of Jesus when he left and all sorts of things to talk about. And Luke says, I'm going to take the biggest part of this, the big chunk of it, and I'm going to tell the story about two disciples who couldn't figure Jesus out at all. And I'm fascinated that Luke says, I'm going to take all this space to tell you the story we'll look at today. One of the longest stories in Luke. So let's take a look at this story of these two disciples who they had heard the they'd heard what had happened on that day this is on the first uh, Sunday that of uh, the resurrection when Jesus rose from the dead and so we're in Luke 24 starting at verse 13 and we'll just walk through these verses slowly together now that same day so the same day that the women had gone to the tomb and found it empty and seen angels and the angels said he's risen that same day two of them and, and the two of them, it seems that these are all the others because we're told, we were hearing about the 11 and all the others, the people who gathered together to follow Jesus. Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed, and one translation actually says argued about these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. 
And what fascinating words. They were kept from recognizing him. Jesus came up and started talking with them, and they didn't know who he was. And it's not because he looked different. It's because they were kept from recognizing him. And, and people who, who, who write about these things, they talk about the divine passive. Sometimes in the passive verb form, right? we're not told who did it, but we're to recognize this is the work of God. God chose to have them not recognize Jesus. Fascinating. God said, I want you to talk to Jesus without knowing it's Jesus. And I just want to make this observation. Sometimes God keeps us in the dark for our good. Sometimes he says, I'm not going to let you understand it's me here because I want to teach. I want to do a good work. So they were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus starts a conversation with them. Imagine what it's like to realize you've been having a conversation with Jesus and you didn't know it. (laughs) He starts a conversation. They don't know it's him. So verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. So just stop there for a second. Fascinating. Jesus walks up to them and he asks them, what are you talking about? <laughs> and they say, well, we're talking about everything's happened in Jerusalem. And he says, well, what things, he asked. Jesus is a great teacher. And he wanted them to tell their ideas. This is one of the cool things that's a part of Alpha right now that's happening in these, these uh, conversations about the truth of Christianity that includes big space to say, so what do you think? And Jesus did this. He knew what they were wrong about, but he says, I want you to tell me. I want to hear what you have to say. And as a great teacher, he did this so they could learn. He said, put your ideas on the table. Now in a minute, he's going to teach them, but he started there. And I'm convinced he did this so that we could learn. Because there's a good chance that what they said is something we need to learn about too. And so Jesus said, tell me what you know. Tell me what you're talking about. And so then they said about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. They explain. They tell about Jesus and they talk about him as a prophet. And they say great things he taught and he did. It was just amazing. They say we had hoped. We had hoped that he was the redeemer of Israel. And, and I think it's not, a, 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 it's not random that they, they describe him as a prophet. See, I think a number of people thought, boy, I think this is a new Moses. Right? Moses rose up and led the people out of bondage in Egypt and caused them to form a, a new nation and taught them and led them and delivered them. And they said, we had hoped this was going to be another Moses to deliver us 
out of the bondage to to the Romans, but also to the corruption and the troubles in their own country, we had hoped. And imagine if Moses had died. Right? People say, great, finally, some of the plagues have happened, and they think maybe this is really going to happen. And imagine if Moses had died, how distraught they would have been. And then imagine this. What if Moses had died because the leaders of Israel had killed him? How distressing this would have been. They said, we thought Jesus was going to be great like Moses. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. And now he's dead. And yeah, he talked about this third day thing, and it's the third day, but we can't make sense of it. And here they struggle with what the women have said, and and the women amazed them. They say, wow, what they had to say, it's powerful, but how can it be true? How could that be true? You see, these disciples, they knew most of the facts, but their wrong assumptions blinded them to the truth. They had faulty assumptions that made them not even be able to recognize the work of God in the amazing work of Jesus. And so now, verse 25, Jesus turns to teaching them. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the pro- that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus turned to these two and said, how foolish, right? Not how unintelligent you are, (laughs) right? He said, there's something wrong in your hearts. You are slow to believe. And what was it that they were slow to believe? I think especially this line, the Messiah had to suffer these things. Did not the Messiah have to suffer and then enter his glory? And they didn't have a category for that. They didn't they couldn't make sense of a Messiah who suffered and died. They couldn't make sense of that. They had no category for it. Their assumption was, that's not what it's like when God is going to deliver his people. It's like the plagues in Egypt and Moses just gets more and more powerful and then he leads us out. That's what Jesus was supposed to do. They didn't have a category for a Messiah who would suffer and die. And so Jesus started with Moses and the prophets, meaning all the scriptures. And he went through all the scriptures and taught them how the scriptures said this is what's going to happen. So you know what Luke doesn't do? He doesn't tell us what Jesus told him. What? The greatest thing that Jesus is going to teach and he doesn't tell us. Well, actually, I think we call it the New Testament. I think we read in so many places, Luke has repeatedly said this was to fulfill. Right? Repeatedly we're told, here's a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Covenant and Jesus' work. So we do get to read what Jesus taught them. It's just not right here. But Luke summarizes And he says, here's what the Old Testament taught. The Messiah will have to suffer before he enters his glory. So then verse 28. uh, As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, 
and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Paul for words. Was Jesus deceptive? He was pretending to keep walking, right? And so it's like, is this, is this deception? But you know what? This is exactly culturally appropriate. <laughs> he couldn't kind of hang with them as they're going to their house and, well, I wonder if they'll offer me dinner. I'll just follow along close. No, he had to show he is not expecting their hospitality and they had to urge him to accept the hospitality. They said, come with him. And he said, no, no, no. Come on, Jesus, really come with us. No, I don't think so. Really, Jesus, come and eat with us. And he says, okay. They urged him strongly, which is both a cultural expression and this is what disciples do. Disciples say, Jesus, I really, really want to know. I really want this fellowship with you. I want this. And he stayed with them. And then he did a really surprising, culturally inappropriate thing to do. He began to act like the host. (laughs) He took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. Not what you do when you're a visitor at somebody's house, but it is what you do when you're the Messiah. And my guess is that these two had been with Jesus at earlier times that he had done this. Maybe at the feeding of the 5,000, exactly the same things. Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he handed it out. And the same thing that he did in the Last Supper. He took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And when he did that, their eyes were opened. Again, I think a divine passive, that their eyes were opened, and yet it's like, wait a minute, we've seen this before. I think he looks familiar, and they recognized him. They said, this is, this is Jesus, this is the one. And then he disappeared. (laughs) And you know what? I think there's a powerful thing in him disappearing. He said, what I want you to do now is to go be witnesses to other people. And if I stay here with you, you're not going anywhere. They said to each other, we're not our hearts burning within us as Jesus opened the scriptures. He disappeared, but they say, you know what? He helped us see the things we've been blind to. And their hearts burning in them. This was the conviction. You know what? This is actually really true. We've never seen it, but it's always been there. This is the truth. I love what happened here. We have the scripture. We have the scripture explained. And then we have an encounter with Jesus. And so what did they do? Verse 33, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Now stop a second. Remember, they went from Jerusalem out to Emmaus, seven miles. When they got to Emmaus, They said, Jesus, you can't travel anymore because it's late in the day. Come and eat with us. So he came and he ate with them. And they discover that this is Jesus. And immediately, they start the seven-mile journey, a couple of hours to walk back. You don't travel at night, but they say, I don't care. (laughs) We got to go back to God's people and let them know. Right? So they went to be witnesses. And there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, now catch this, who's speaking this next line? The people in Jerusalem. When these two visitors from Emmaus came back to Jerusalem, the people in Jerusalem said, it's true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. And then finally, the two had their chance. Then the two told what had happened on the way. And now Jesus was recognized by them when he broke 
the bread. What a celebration that would have been when they came back thinking, we'll be the ones that break the news to everybody, (laughs) only to discover that God has been doing the same work with other people. So I really think this story is a conversion story, right? It's a story where we start it with these these two. They left Jerusalem discouraged, saying, "God's, God's work, we were wrong about it. This isn't it. This one we thought would save us, he's disappointed us. He suffered, he died, he lost. And then they returned to Jerusalem with joy, saying, it is true, he is alive. And I'm convinced that this conversion came when they learned a big idea that was very different from what they thought. And that is this, in God's perfect plan to rescue us, Jesus suffered and died before being raised to glory. This is how God did his work. He sent his son to suffer and die before being raised to glory. And Jesus had to prove this. He had to go to scripture and say, look, this is exactly what it's been saying all along. The passage that was read for us today, that Gene used in the prayer, right? That says, this one will suffer and die in our place. The, the, the wounds that we deserve will kill him and yet he will come to life again. Jesus went and proved this to them. They had to see that in God's perfect plan, his son suffered and died before being raised to glory. And then Jesus said, follow me. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. In other words, your journey will probably be pretty similar. Let me dig into that a minute. So I want to go back to this. Even the brightest students have false ideas based on enduring misconceptions that are not easily changed. And so I'll take the conclusion of the research and add this line, even mature Christians have false ideas based on enduring misconceptions that are not easily changed. And I think in this passage, here was the false idea that they had. Their false idea is that when God is at work, things are always better in obvious ways. There's more happiness, there's more comfort, there's more ease, there's more growth, right? It'll just keep getting better. Every day will be better than the previous one because when God shows up, that's what it's like. A confession about a bias I have about uh, the use of God's name as an adjective. I don't like it. But often people say, it was a God thing, right? And, and so I don't like it when we say that, but, but I know the idea. It's a God thing. When do we say it was a God thing? When things amazingly worked out just the way we'd want them to. That was a God thing. When everything goes bad, we don't say, oh, well, it was a God thing. Right? We say, where was God? (laughs) And yet, when Jesus died on the cross, it was a God thing. This was God's perfect plan. Right? See, the true idea is that God is working all things together for good. And in this case, the supposed ruin of all their hopes was actually their fulfillment. The thing that was the worst possible thing they could imagine in the death of Jesus on the cross was actually the best possible thing. They couldn't see it because they thought when God shows up, everything is good. And the true idea is that God is working through all things and in fact, God uses trouble and hardship to help us to know him, to help us to grow, to find his joy, to know his power, to build relationships. God uses trouble and hardship to help us. He used trouble and hardship in Jesus' life to help us. And he says, this is what I do. Right? God uses 
our weakness to show his power. And I think, well, is that really true? So I'm pushed to scripture. And, and so the first part, Paul, he went on with this theme. When he would preach to the Jews, he had to say, this is really God's plan. Paul was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Because people said that's not what it's like when God shows up. Right? And I think about it. I've had friends say to me, I just wish that God would show up. But what would we do if God shows up and he dies? Right? Oh, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. Paul went to scripture and said, no, that's exactly God's plan. That Jesus would suffer and die before being raised to glory. And so then what about us? So there was a time when, when Paul had been stoned and left for dead. And people were really troubled by this, right? But he was still alive. And they thought, wow, what's gone wrong? Where is God's power? Where's God's goodness? Where's God's protection? And we're told this from Acts 14. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And here's what they said. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. See, God's perfect plan for Jesus was that he would suffer and die before being raised to glory. And Paul had to convince the people that when he was stoned and left for dead, this wasn't a failure on God's part. This was a part of the journey that God had for him because he says, we're going to go through a lot of hardships to get there. Jesus himself said this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus said, don't expect that when I show up, all of a sudden, the flowers are blooming and the sun shines and everything's good. Sometimes, when I show up to do my work, it gets worse. It seems to be bad. But he says, this is the work that I'm doing. Now, we want escape from trouble, right? I do. And if you look at my prayer life, there's an awful lot of that in it, right? And so often I think we believe that if we live well and we pray and obey and have genuine faith in God, we're going to experience more blessings, right? We think if we just do that, life should go smoother. So when we have trouble, we tend to try to figure out somebody to blame, right? Who are the people who are close by when things don't go well? It must be their fault. (laughs) And so there was a time when Paul prayed three times to have trouble taken away and Somebody at the conference mentioned this. and Three times? Is that all he prayed? I do that every minute when I'm in trouble. But this was Paul, three times intentionally, probably over days and fasting and saying, God, would you take this trouble from me? Right? I'm trusting you, God. I'm praying. You say you answer prayer. And this answer from God is astounding. He says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, he said, then I am strong. A profoundly different idea from saying when God shows up, it all just flows. It all comes together and and there's peace and it's all great. And God says, You want to know my power. It's going to come when you know you're weak. That's when you're going to see it. That's when you're going to know it. It's going to come in the midst of trouble. And so Paul says, so 
I want to know God. I want to know his power. I want to know his presence. And so he says, I delight when weaknesses come. In insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. Whew. Want to put that on your, on your banner? Let's have it today, God, right? <laughs> and yet, a thing from the conference. I want interactions with people to be easy. That's what I want. I want it so that it's easy to get along. And yet, this statement is, you know what? When you hit a challenge between people, lean into it. Say, God's going to work in this. We see things differently. And so God's going to teach us. We're going to discover things here. And so in faith, we say, for Christ's sake, to be like Jesus, we say, yes, the journey that God has for us has its challenges. And we expect him to be there in the midst of them. So, uh, so drawing from Karen, um, the artist who is struggling to make the art, and I don't know if you can tell, but even the paintbrush is broken. Uh, this art day is not going well. Sometimes our best efforts just make a mess, right? And we think we're a failure when our best efforts make a mess. Yet it is through those hard times that our skill improves, Right? So no one gets better at painting without persevering when the paint misbehaves. <laughs> you just don't. If, if you get to that point and you say, ah, oh, it's a bad day for paint, I guess I'm done. You don't improve, right? Or for the students and scholars among us, <laughs> right? Sometimes our best efforts to learn leave us stuck in confusion and, and anger at the textbook <laughs> and anger at the data, messed up data. Yet it is through those hard times that our thinking improves, right? No one really learns without persevering when it is hard to understand. And so, sometimes we imagine that growing in God shouldn't be a struggle. We say, no, 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 no. If we, if we have faith and if we're following him, it shouldn't be so hard. <laughs> and that's exactly what these two disciples said who left. You get this? On that first Easter Sunday morning, they left. They were among the disciples. They left because he said, this isn't working, right? Our leader is dead. And now they're probably going to come for us. These two disciples were leaving Jesus behind because they thought God's work wouldn't include suffering and dying. And guess what Jesus did? He went to find them. He got on the road with them and he started walking away from Jerusalem with them. He said, so tell me why you're leaving Jerusalem. Tell me what's going on. And then he said, I want you to see, in God's perfect plan to rescue us, Jesus suffered and died before being raised to glory. And Jesus said, follow me. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And so Luke, in deciding to say, what do I teach the church about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And I think he took a big section to say, you know what? The resurrection fit the plan of God that followed the suffering and death of his son to rescue us. He said, I want the church to know this is how God works in the world. Not to come in and make it all easy, but to use a journey that's challenging to bring great good. Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians, his goal, he said, in teaching you is so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we were destined for them. He was talking to a group of people that, that following Christ was difficult. And he says, I don't want you to be unsettled by this as though somebody's done something wrong. 
No, this is the plan. This is the work that God does. And so the application is in one way quite simple and another way quite challenging. It's to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus even when the path is painful. And again, I think I have lived much of my life thinking, but, but if we really followed well, it shouldn't be painful. But here's the reality. Christians don't get a pass on bodies that decay. Right? Christians get debilitating diseases and sometimes they go away when we pray, but awful lot of the time they don't. Christians, as we know with the, the death of Pastor Mike Hickson at Graham Church, sometimes Christians die completely unexpectedly and there's nothing you can do about it. Christians have bodies that decay and, and it's hard to just get through the day. We have that too. Sometimes the path we're on is challenging just because we live in a world that's challenging. Sometimes we're in a path that's challenging because we're people and we live near people and people sin, right? And, and we have all this trouble. Following Jesus is painful and this is part of the message that trying to live in a complex space of a diverse community when people are sinful is hard. It's hard if we're all perfect <laughs> and none of us is even when the path is painful, even when the path is confusing, and we say, God, what are you doing? Just keep following. Even Jesus prayed, Father, might there be another path that we could take? But he said, no, I'll follow. And how do we do it? I think the model from this passage is so powerful. Follow Jesus by knowing scripture. Yet, that's far from simple. We need to work to find its meaning, not the meaning we bring to it. And I've seen over and over again how I have brought a meaning to the text. And we heard about people doing research that says, you know what, so often we bring a meaning to the text that says, but that verse I don't have to really pay attention to. And I've realized that I have done that with the call to love my enemies. I said, well, yeah, I, I get the concept, but these people aren't really my enemies. They're just really annoying. And so I don't have to love them because they're not my enemies, Right. I come up with all these excuses that Jesus says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for them. And I come up with ways to say, well, that actually doesn't apply in this situation because you know, when I come up with an excuse, just like the man who said, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, who really is that, right? I could filter this down and I can still obey but not have to do it. We have to really work to find the meaning of scripture rather than bringing our meaning to it and finding it there. And the way it happened for these two people, which I'll say some people think they were husband and wife because they went to their house, could be, I don't know. But to these two people, they had somebody who explained. And sometimes we really need help of somebody to explain. And for that, we need to find good teachers, including and perhaps especially people who aren't like us. If we listen to people who are like us, tell us what scripture means, they're probably making the same poor assumptions that we are. And it feels really comfortable that way. And so we got to find people who will teach us what scripture is really saying. And to find people who have different life experience, different histories and heritage to say, you know what, there's stuff that you're not seeing. We need to follow Jesus by understanding scripture as Jesus did. He said, let's go back to scripture. Then he explained it so they could actually hear it plus an encounter with Jesus, right? To, to, to encounter him, and that's what exactly what these two people had. 
Jesus read the scripture, explained the scripture, and then had a meal with them, and their eyes were opened. And so in this, we pray, we listen, we follow, and say, Jesus, we want to encounter you. I wonder sometimes if the writer of Hebrews was one of these people. Uh, A powerful idea from Hebrews 12, and I just want to highlight these two things. The very beginning says, endure hardship as discipline. He goes on to say, we know that parents sometimes make life hard for kids. (laughs) They could make it easier for the kids, but they make it hard for the kids. (laughs) And we say, well, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be because the parents are helping the kids grow. He says, if we'll put up with that with parents, (laughs) why do we struggle when God disciplines us? And so verse 11, near the end there, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. He says, the journey that we're on is not a little bit easier and a little bit better every day. He says, the journey we're on is one where God disciplines us. And sometimes that includes hardship and suffering and difficulty and conflict. And yet, like kids should trust a good parent to discipline well. We should trust God to teach us well, knowing that it will bring a fruit of of, of righteousness and peace when we're trained by it. You know the story of Job. Uh, Job experienced great trouble that he didn't deserve. Life was so hard, and he tried so hard to be so good. And this conversation with his wife is so powerful. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He has treated you so badly. Just be done with this. He said, You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And what powerful words. Should we accept good from God and not adversity? How do we know what it's like when God shows up? When God showed up as the Son of God in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, he suffered and he died before being raised to glory. And he was raised to glory and he is there now. And yet, should we be surprised when he says, follow me on that path. I'll be with you, it'll be good, and it's going to be tremendously good eventually. If you'll follow. One of my hardest classes in college uh, here at MSU was abstract algebra. Um, I didn't know what it meant either, so uh, I had a little bit better idea at the end of the course. But it was the kind of course where I'd get an assignment and there would be three problems in this assignment. I think, okay, not bad. I read the problem and I think, this is so obvious. I don't get what the problem is. You know, it's kind of like in, in, in you know, mathematics, they say prove zero equals zero. It's like, well, of course, zero equals zero. No, this is actually a hard thing to prove. Zero equals zero. So I get this problem. And the first half hour in a problem, I can't even see what the problem is. And then the insight comes. Oh, now I get what the problem is. I haven't a clue what to do about this, (laughs) right? They were teaching me. And it turns out God was teaching me too. Because sometimes in our lives as a Christian, we look at something, we say, I don't even get what the problem is. I don't understand this at all. And then God opens our eyes and we say, oh no, this is so hard. I don't have a solution to this. 
And God says, will you trust me like a really good teacher to help you grow? God says to us, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Not my power is made perfect in in really good people who try hard and and they have a lot of skill. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses and the things that show my weakness. I don't like those things. Things that show that I am weak, I want to avoid them like the plague. Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And a paraphrase of this says, the less I have, the more I depend upon him. And so then Paul said, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And so here's what he says, the trouble is in this life, our light and momentary troubles. They don't feel like it today. (laughs) Jesus' death on the cross didn't look like a light and momentary trouble. But compared to the glory he, he held and holds forever. It doesn't compare. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. I don't know what your troubles are today. I think I know some of them. (laughs) Had enough conversations with enough people to have some idea of what these troubles are. And this is not at all to say they aren't heavy. They are heavy. They're real and they're challenging. And yet, God says, compared to what's ahead, they are nothing. Because there is an eternal glory that is just overwhelming in its goodness. Will you trust me for that? Our light and momentary troubles, all that we encounter, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And know that these troubles range in all the things from the things I say I'm to blame, to saying you're to blame, to saying somebody else is to blame, to just saying it's a messed up world. All of these troubles, he says, God is working for good. As a good teacher, as a good father. To lead us to glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are wise and good and sometimes we see your ways and we think they aren't very wise or good. And there are messed up things in this world, yet even through the efforts of people and the effort of Satan to destroy your son, you worked good. Since you did that, we will work to trust you. Father, I pray for us today Many of us are living through really hard times with deep challenges, some that others know about and some that no one else knows about, some we try to hide from ourselves. Father, I pray. I pray that you would bring hope, that these troubles aren't hidden from you and they are not wasted, that you are at work. I pray that you would give us courage and hope that it is through trouble that we live in this life. Jesus, you said we're going to have trouble in this world and oh, you were right. And yet you say, you have overcome. And so we'll trust you. I pray that you'd help us to encourage each other to trust you, to know you are good, 
as we work to, to follow your ways and, and to right what is wrong, yet we know that your goodness comes in your time, in your way. And so we trust you. So Father, I, I pray that you would help each one of us to be confident in Jesus, our Savior, who suffered and died and has been raised to glory and invites us to follow all the way to our home and glory. In Jesus we pray. Amen.